Well, g'day everyone. I come from the land down under and I am here on I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy Waller. This is my dear friend and co-host, Brian McDowell. Brian McDowell, how are you? I'm very good, Troy. We're recording just that little bit later than we usually would. Sometimes we're up on a Saturday morning quite early, but, you know, I'm feeling chirpy. However, this morning I set my alarm earlier than I should have at the time we usually record, and I've been up early. But I'm still chipper. I'm feeling good. I'm uncaffeinated, but feeling good. I was sort of last minute, to be honest, in terms of getting up, and I quickly rushed. And guess what I had for breakfast? Vegemite toast. Exactly, but in true modern Aussie fashion, on sourdough. Ah, yes, you've got to be a little bit fancy these days. But how do you have your Vegemite? I have my Vegemite so thick that it makes people dry wretch when they're watching me No, 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 I'm very very thin. Actually, I'm probably more in the middle somewhere. It's certainly not thick. It's sort of scraped on, and I enjoy it that way. I see. I can eat Vegemite off a spoon. Oh, no. I love it. I absolutely love it. You have a problem. I'm watching our guest, who I'll introduce shortly, dry retching herself, thinking about me eating a spoonful of Vegemite. And many, many people outside of the land down under don't understand the beauty of Vegemite. That's right. I remember the first time I gave Vegemite to my Chinese now wife, she said, oh, this is interesting, and then went and got some ketchup and put ketchup on the top of it. Um, And I thought, what a strange thing to do. It's like the Thai have ketchup on their pizza. But then I realized she was actually just trying to smother the taste. I, I don't get it. I mean, I it's rare that you come across an Australian who doesn't like Vegemite. So obviously you're oh, raised on it. That'll be my daughter. That'll be my daughter. She's not a fan. She's not yeah, a fan. Okay. Anyway, Brian, over to you. Well, today our, our dry retching person who is coming on is the wonderful Janice Selby. Now, a little bit of background to Janice. Janice was born and raised in a Canadian evangelical Christian home with parents who believed the Bible was literal and inerrant, which many of us <laughs> many of our listeners would identify with. Then she married a man who became a pastor. That would make Janice a pastor's wife. And they were married for nearly 20 years and raised two daughters. But in her late 30s, Janice experienced a series of tragedies which caused her sufficient doubt in the God of the Bible, and it shook her loose from her cognitive dissonance and prompted her to start researching other religions and all she had denied herself. We are going to dig into that, and we want to hear more about Janice's story and also what she did after her divorce. She went back to school, she became a registered professional counsellor, and now works with people who have trauma associated with religious fundamentalism, amongst many other things. Janice, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I only wish I could be with you over there. That'd be a treat. Well, I mean, you're probably in the the warmer months of the year for you. In, we're moving into the, the colder months, so it depends. Are you, are you a Canadian that loves the cold, or do you like when the warmth comes? I don't know any Canadians that really love the cold. I think they may be pulling your leg if they tell you they love the cold. <laughs> well, especially if your cold is cold. I mean, we we complain here. We're in the southern states of uh, Australia, in Victoria, in Melbourne, and 
here, you know, we're lucky if we get a zero degree night maybe once or twice a year. It's it's very, very rare. And most of our days are 10 or 12 degrees Celsius. So I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's not that cold. I mean, we, that sounds great. we, we can't complain. <laughs> we get down to about uh, minus 40 sometimes in the winter here. This is Celsius. And then where I live in British Columbia, we can get to plus 40 uh, or even up to 45 degrees in the summertime. It gets very hot. We have lots of vineyards and orchards surrounding us in British Columbia here. I'm very spoiled and I know it. It, it is a beautiful part of the world, which is on my list of travels. So I would definitely love to get there. And um, we can pop in and we can we can do tea and scones or something that is a, is a nod to our monarch. Janice, I'm going to start firing questions at you if that's okay. And, of course, knowing that this episode is also going to be airing on your podcast, so you're, you know, you're welcome to invite us and welcome us to your podcast at any point if you want. But we really want to know, were you a teenage fundamentalist and what did that look like? Oh, wow. Yes, I definitely was. So I was raised in a Pentecostal evangelical home. So there was speaking in tongues, there was anointing with oil. We did have a television, but there were certain programs we could not watch, such as Bewitched, or I Dream of Genie, or anything. Even sometimes Scooby-Doo was touch and go, if we could watch that, because there might be ghosts in there. I went to public school, and it was really tricky, because I knew that I was a Christian, being in a Christian home, I knew, I felt very strongly that that was the only way for people to be. But I saw that I never quite fit in then with my public school friends. They always seemed to be having just a bit more fun uh, than I ever seemed able to have. When I was about 14, there was a big evangelical revival kind of meeting in our town, and I went and Sure enough, they had an altar call. And so I cried my way down to the front. So I think I'm maybe 14 years old at this point. I'm the youngest of four in my family. And so by this time, mom and dad were were working full time. Brothers were often not home. So I was left on my own quite a bit. And so when I went to this altar call, and there was about a 19-year-old young woman who met me at the bottom of the, you know, the auditorium and prayed with me. And now, of course, I know that she was love bombing me. And I was so starved to feel seen and accepted. And I just bought right into it. And I was hardcore um, from that point on. And I caused a lot of trouble for myself in junior high because I was so zealous, obnoxiously so. And I couldn't understand the bullying, say, that that I was the recipient of not recognizing that. I brought an awful lot of that on myself as I walked around the campus with my great big Bible under my arm and t-shirts that had Bible verses on them and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, in my teens, I would say I was a fundamentalist. And then in my very late teens, walked away for a few years till I had a big back to Jesus moment again when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I never really looked back after that. If I thought I'd been a fundamentalist before, 
boy, that was nothing compared to <laughs> what I turned into. I can totally relate to that. I used to actually have Bible verses written on my folders and textbooks oh, yes. and things like that. Like I had references and yes. and I can remember one day sitting in class and some guys next to me going, ooh, Mark 16, ooh, you know, John 2, ooh, like this at me and I didn't get it. And then I looked at it and I realized, oh, they're giving me a hard time because of my Bible verses. <gasps> I'm being persecuted. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Yes. Oh, yes, I one time had... Had my my youth group maybe come and march around my public high school seven times, you know, gotta be that holy number to break the stronghold of the enemy. Yeah, I was all in. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we've we've all been part of a march, haven't we? A little march <laughs> for Jesus. It's it's quite sad when you look back on it. Seven times though, seven times is what you do, right? That's how you bring down the walls of Jericho. Totally, sister. Amen. Amen. It can't it can't be six and a half. Must be seven. It's got to be the full seven. And then uh, when I rejected or when I backslid, yes, there's the word we want. When I backslid in my late teens and early twenties, boy, I. Uh, made up for some lost time there. I became a bar fly, just a fixture at the the bar, a lot of drinking, a lot of sex. Until then, I like I mentioned, I had my very big back to Jesus moment when I was then in when I was 23. And then I was just on the very straight and narrow after that. And then eventually went even further on the deep dive when my husband at the time went to Bible college and there were all these women that would show up in the grocery store in this tiny prairie town in Canada. And these women would have their hair covered and they were always wearing these modest dresses. And I said to my husband at the time, I didn't know we had Amish people here. And he said, they're not Amish. They're a particular brand of Mennonite and they're dressing uh, according to the new Testament. And I thought that was shocking. I must have just glossed over those parts before. So I went home and read the New Testament and looked in the concordance and the lexicon and all those magical books there. And I thought, he's right. There's no, there's been no cutoff date for this. Women should be dressed modestly and appropriately. And if they're always to be in prayer, and their hair should always be covered. And I threw out all my pants and jeans, my jewelry. I stopped wearing my wedding ring, threw out all my makeup, covered my hair immediately and didn't cut it again for years and years, stopped cutting our, our daughter's hair. So yeah, very extreme for me. And I felt comforted by the rules. The more rules, uh, the safer I felt because I grew up in kind of an unsafe home. So learning to follow rules was important to me. It was a safety issue. Did you and your husband then join some sort of Mennonite branch or was it more Pentecostal? Where where were you guys at that stage? He was, I think, very tolerant because I I said, asked him, please, would he please grow a beard? I felt really strongly that men were to be hairy and have hairy faces. (laughs) I actually felt that I too was to be hairy because I thought it was a sin to get rid of any hair. So picture that. Uh, Anyway, so uh, then he agreed to come with me to this um, covered Mennonite church. It's a closed Mennonite church. They were called Haldeman Mennonites. And we just started showing up there. And they were like, who are you? These people have all kind of been growing up on a colony together, sort of. They all know each other. And then these strangers 
just come in that I mean I was modestly dressed I had my hair covered my daughters were modestly dressed and so they cautiously welcomed us and then I would I would go to their bible studies and the church was quite different because men and women sat on separate sides and there were no instruments and my ex-husband and I are both musicians so that took some getting used to and then they didn't have a pastor it would just be a different man from the congregation each week who would share and I just thought that I hit the jackpot I was like there is no one holier than these people they are trying so hard to live out the bible in modern times if they got a new car they would rip the stereo out of that car and have a big gaping hole there. I could wear dresses with patterns, I found, but there were rules about the size of the patterns. It couldn't be too small, like dime size, that would be too busy. And it couldn't be too large, larger than a quarter, because that also would be drawing too much attention. So they had rules for everything, which I, I thought that was great. But um, my husband not so much. So eventually he put his foot down and said, uh, I, I don't feel as comfortable here as you do. So we just went back to the the church on the campus, the Bible college campus. And I was certainly the only person, woman who covered, was wearing a head covering then. And I would refer to myself as the Lord's veiled handmaid. How's that sound? Is that sound? Is that, that's pretty... That sounds prophetic. That's what oh I said. Did you did, did you, you report? Did you say pathetic? It sounds. Uh, yes, yes. But <laughs> that's but that's a whole new level of commitment. I mean, there's no group saying to you, "You have to be this. You have to be that." You've gone back. You've looked at what you interpret the scriptures saying, and go, "Hey." I've, I've got to do this. And then you seek out a community which reinforces that. That's a whole new level of commitment. That's that, And also your husband, who Janice, I may remind you, was head of the house. I know. Um, <laughs> my, here, my spiritual head. <laughs> here are you leading him in there. God, you modern woman, you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I see that so many times in homeschool communities, in uh, Christian homeschool communities, all, all these women really wanting their husbands to step into the leadership position. But it's the women who are driving the whole thing. And that's how it was for me. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I started covering my hair because I felt, so our marriage was uh, difficult. It wasn't an easy marriage, but I assumed because he was my spiritual head that the problem was always me. The problem could not be him. It had to be me. So it was, uh, I wasn't submissive enough. I was too opinionated. I talked too much, whatever it was. So when I started wearing that head covering, I did so kind of as a visual cue and reminder to myself. And I really tried very hard to dim my shine or dull my sparkle or, you know, whatever you want to say, so that my husband would be seen as greater than me. I really tried to put myself into the background. And that was not a natural state for me. Janice, you've already touched on this a little bit, but let's go a little bit deeper. What was it that you think was going on inside yourself that made you want to be so rigid, that made you want to be so, so intense, so all in? 
Yeah, I, I really think it does have to do a lot with family of origin and how seriously my parents um, took the Bible. Uh, and so I didn't know, I couldn't imagine any other book that was more appropriate for me to be very serious about and and base my life on. And of course, I did completely believe in heaven and hell. Uh, and I thought my most important deal was to ensure that my own daughters would be servants of the Lord and uh, that they would then marry and have children and raise them in a godly home. So I, I felt absolutely righteous in what I was doing, felt like I was doing it for good reasons. I would never talk to other women about covering unless they asked me. I never told my friends or anybody else that I thought they needed to cover. I just took it as it's something for me to do and I can be an example to others, but I don't want to be making things stressful in friendships if I'm um, insisting that people do what I'm doing. That was lovely that you were quietly (laughs) (laughs) self-righteous. I know. I like to think so. (laughs) You were saying you you didn't cut your daughter's hair either and uh assumedly they also were dressing modestly covering up how did that work for them within their friendship groups like did they have other Mennonite children around them that they could uh, I guess assimilate into to that friendship group or were they I don't know a little bit outcastish as a result well uh, we were homeschooling so our the, the kids um, interactions were with other homeschool uh, kids, which it's it's a huge competition in the homeschool community. Whose kids can be the holiest? Whose kids can be the most obedient and memorize the most scripture? So yeah, that was that wasn't a big deal for them. Now there did come a time when we left the Bible college and my then husband decided he was called to be a pastor. I did not feel that he was called to be a pastor, but what I thought didn't matter. He thought that that's what he wanted to do. So we moved to another prairie town and I was still wearing my head covering and he was became the pastor of a small Pentecostal church. And after a little while, he said to me, uh, I want you to stop wearing your head covering. It just creates division in the community and and in the church because the other women don't do it. And I was so hurt because I really felt like I, I thought I was doing something that was helpful and was obedient. Uh, But so of course, when he said that he didn't want me uh, wearing it anymore, I stopped, I stopped wearing it. But the marriage really started, I think, fraying or coming apart in those years that we were at the the Bible college for other reasons. And our temperaments and dispositions are very, very different. And I think he tends to be on the autism spectrum. And so that can be, there's just a lot of differences there uh, in people. So it was challenging. Yeah. And so the marriage was coming apart. And uh, I remembered one time (laughs) we'd had guests over for dinner and the guests were gone and there were dirty dishes everywhere and we didn't have a dishwasher. And I had asked him, would he mind helping me clear the table? And he said, why, you know, why should I do that? And I said, um, 
because it would set a good example for our little girls if they saw their daddy helping carrying the dishes to the kitchen. And he, I think he'd had quite enough of my self-righteousness. I don't know. He said to me, why don't you set a good example by doing it yourself with a servant's heart? And I wanted to punch him in the nose, but I did not. I remembered that I was the Lord's veiled handmaid. And so I cleaned up all those dishes. But that was around a time that I started going, hmm, I'm not sure about all this. I'm not sure about the marriage. And I'm not sure if I really want him to be taking up the role of headship to this degree, if it means that uh, he wouldn't even be willing to help me on uh, small things like that. So there was a lot going on for both of us. And it was a difficult time. And then we put the children into school at least part-time into regular school when we had moved and he was being a pastor. Then we just had a really difficult year where my parents split up. They'd been together for 40 years. So my parents uh, split up. Um, Oh, my nephew killed somebody and was going to prison. Uh, And then there were a couple of other things that also went on in that same time. Uh, And it was just nightmarish and we ended up leaving the pastorate and coming back to hometown. And then we went uh, bankrupt because my husband couldn't pay off the Bible college bills that were there, the student loans. And then the last thing was our youngest child uh, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is a life-threatening uh, illness and a lifelong illness. And she was very, very sick. Uh, and that was just it. That was it for me. I, I thought I've been trying as hard as I can to live according to the Bible. And if this is how I met just with this constant shitstorm of bad news, everything going wrong, I must have bet on the wrong horse. God's not in here. God's not in the Bible. Maybe he's somewhere, but he is not here. And so that's when I, for the first time, really started giving myself permission to doubt and to question, and to look elsewhere. So I did. I did a deep dive into New Age stuff. Oh my God, yeah, psychics and astrology and everything that I could never look at before, uh, and things that just seemed interesting. And so I spent a few years, got really deep in there. Oh, I could I could align your chakras. <laughs> I could fix you, heal you with my crystals. Um, and then... Even in that community, I I found uh, there was nonsense and dogma. And people were trying to convince me that they could communicate with, I don't know, aliens or something like this. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, not again. Like, I just left this. So then I realized I didn't need to have any kind of uh, spiritual or um, religious belief system. I was fine on my own. So with that exploration that you've you've done, was this something you were doing independently or did you have some other people that you were leaning on to sort of bounce off and explore and jump into different things or much like your exploration into the Bible and really going that direction you did, wasn't an independent thing? Was it something that you were seeking out alone? Yeah, I, it, that's such a good question. Because the marriage was coming apart, 
Uh, and especially so with all the additional pressures, you know, the financial pressures and, of course, having a child with a um, life-threatening illness. We weren't talking to each other very much. We were just trying to cope with blow after blow that was coming. And I didn't feel certainly that I could talk to my Christian friends about it because I knew the answer would be you have to pray more or you're not you're just not believing hard enough, some kind of nonsense like that. And so I was so secretive about it when I first started questioning. I waited until uh, my husband was at work and the kids were at school and we had a little used bookstore across the street from us. And so I went across the street and they had a section uh, in the back of the bookstore. It was closed off with a velvet curtain and it was called oh, Occult and Alternative Religions. And I thought, damn it, I'm going to go back there and I'm going to see, and God may strike me dead, but I'm going to see what's back there. So I did. I opened that curtain and plucked up all my courage, went back there, and my heart was just pounding. And I found a book that looked kind of like a textbook, and it was going to be comparing Christianity and Buddhism and Confucianism and uh, something else. And, and I thought, okay, I can take this and I can learn from it. It didn't look too scary, but I took it up to the cash register and I asked the salesperson to put it in a brown paper bag. I was very nervous. I couldn't risk anyone from church seeing me walk out with this. I ran home with it and I put it the one place I knew even God wouldn't look, which was in my underwear drawer. And so I just tucked it in there and I left it there uh, for, for weeks. And then finally I pulled it out and I started looking at it and and I felt so nervous and scared every time I did. My husband didn't know I would be downstairs in the basement um, looking through this book. And then within a month or so, I went back to that little bookstore and I found this lady called Louise Hay. And so I started reading a bunch of her stuff. Now, of course, then I ended up falling uh, into the New Age stuff. But I did find some of her um, writing, it helped me at that time in my life. I remember reading something she wrote about, you have permission to outgrow your parents and to outgrow your parents' vision of who you should be. That was super helpful for me to find. So um, then as I <laughs> became weirder and weirder, I had to talk to my husband. Like I ended up, uh, I grew dreadlocks um, I got piercings. I started getting tattoos. Uh, these were things that I couldn't really hide from him. So um, then he knew and he just considered it pretty flaky, but whatever. It was just another extreme for me. So yeah, then I met some people in that, uh, that community and spent a lot of time with them in the new age community. But then, like I said, after a few years, I decided, no, I don't even need that. You, you've got to that point where you're like, Okay, I call bullshit on the New Age movement too. You, how long have you been in it? Has it been a couple of years that you've you've been fiddling around the edges and and been really involved in that? Yeah, I would say that was probably three or four years. And what was painful about that realization then was it meant the loss of another community because it was lonely. I missed my church friends. Uh, I certainly missed. Um, feeling like I had a purpose. Yeah, so that was hard to let that one go. And also, I mean, I'd invested a lot of money, a lot of time, 
um, buying books, attending lectures, getting trained for, you know, whatever kind of weird stuff I was getting trained for. Um, and my kids, of course, were watching this as well. I'm, I'm sure they just about got whiplash watching me go from one extreme to the other extreme. But yeah, that was a, that was a hard time. I did ask my kids though, around that time when they were in their early teens, maybe I said, what's it like for you guys? Obviously mom's been changing a lot and they both basically just said that they found me a lot easier this way than when I had been so concerned about rules and regulations. So did you look at your Christianity in that stage and say, Christianity is not true? Or did you, were you still uncertain, but open to maybe finding a, a, a broader vision? Where were you in that stage? Right. Yeah, I think I did. I think I went a road that a lot of people go, which is, um, I decided that maybe it wasn't all to be taken literally. Of course, Jesus was all about love. So we're going to forget the Old Testament, write it off completely, only embrace the New Testament, only the verses about love, whatever verses we want to include. And then got to a point where I decided there was no hell. Everyone would go to heaven. But then I had a real existential crisis when I discovered, oh, if there's no hell, then actually that might mean that there's no heaven either. And uh, so then I called uh, one of my brothers, one of my big brothers, because I knew he was an atheist and had been for years. And I was quite weepy. I was very concerned. Uh, what if this is all there is? And he was, he was good. He was helpful. And he sent me a couple of videos to watch. He said, yep, it's okay. You're going to be all right. But here's a video on optimistic nihilism that you may find helpful or comforting in some way. And I really did. And I just had to continue my journey. I mean, we hear this so often when we interview people and it's weaved into our stories in, in many, many different parts and pieces is that community. It's one thing that stops people quite often, even when they're heavily in the throes of doubt it stops them leaving their community. It stopped me leaving my community because it was my community. It was my safe place, despite the fact that I had to employ a fair share of cognitive dissonance to get through it. They were my people. And, um, you know, I still have friends from many, many years ago leaving several different communities, even though we don't share the same belief system. Obviously, they're few and far between because they're people that have to accept you even after you leave. But it sounds like you went through the same thing and you drifted towards another community, the New Age community, which is, is very accepting, but also very cult-like. I uh, had a, a couple of family, I have a couple of family members who were heavily involved, became rebirth counsellors, you know, astral travellers, all the stuff that, um, that, that I'm sure that you got into as well. And I think, and they bounce between Christian communities and that, and one has landed heavily back in Christian communities. But it was, I think it's that word, community, that, that really draws people in and keeps them. For you, you've, you've lost community twice now. Where to next? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and eventually I, um, so divorced my husband and divorced my religion 
went back to school to become a registered professional counselor and started learning about trauma and then started recognizing some of my own trauma uh, and then figuring out, oh, I think it's not only family of origin trauma, but religious trauma. But I didn't have the words religious trauma. This was like maybe around 2000, the year 2000 maybe 2005. So I didn't even know what to type in on the computer. Like I just knew I was in agony. I didn't know anyone else who had been as devout as I had been, who had walked away and then just had a successful life. So yeah, I was still hanging in there the best I could, but it was painful uh, until I came across uh, Dr. Marlene Winnell and her book, leaving the fold. So I saw Dr. Winnell on some kind of American TV show. They were interviewing her and what she said made so much sense to me. So I got her, found her phone number and talked to her right away. And she said, well, you should come on out to one of my retreats in San Francisco. And um, California is not too far from BC. So I decided I would, even though I was terrified because I hadn't traveled by myself and I was scared that I was going to end up in a cult situation that I probably was going into from one group to another group but I still I stuck with it and I got there and that retreat that I attended with her I think I just probably cried my way through most of the retreat feeling so accepted everyone else who was there who had come out of various fundamental uh, type backgrounds, ex-Mormons, ex-JWs, ex-Catholics, um, ex-Protestants, but all people who believed as earnestly as I had believed and now did not believe and were trying to rebuild their lives uh, from the ground up, really. So getting to know um, Dr. Winnell was really pivotal for me, and we developed a friendship and a, a mentorship. Of course, she's a my colleague as well. And that's how I started to grow my secular support network. And that's that's the main group that I have now. And it's people all around the world, lots of them online for the most part. But now I also have a local group um, that I'm part of that's an atheist group in my hometown as well. So can we talk about that then? Can we talk about religious trauma? Because this is what you specialize in. I really don't know where to begin, but let's maybe try to start with when people first leave, what is, what is it that they can be looking for? What are the signs of religious trauma as you're leaving or as you've just left? When I hear from people, they're often recognizing that they're having some kind of physiological response when they think about church or if they have to attend church for some reason uh, or they'll there'll be something come on the radio and it makes them start to cry or shake or they feel like they're going to throw up so it's kind of a a trauma type reaction to this thing that's reminding them of their religion or sometimes people are having trouble sleeping uh, they can have disordered eating dysfunctional relationships, particularly if they are deconverting and their partner isn't, that can cause huge strife. So people reach out to me when they're having some of those uh, issues, or maybe they've even been out of religion for a long time, but their parents are so far 
into religion and they're really concerned. They want to know how they can preserve the relationship. So when you were doing your research then, what part did your own journey play and was it difficult for you to separate yourself from it or was that part of the journey and and part of the value that you could bring? Yeah, I think um, part of the value as a clinician is that I am absolutely familiar with it because I experienced it in my own way. Um, And of course, now I've worked with people from many different backgrounds. And it is really interesting how even though the backgrounds are quite different, uh, a lot of the, the symptoms and the results are the same. So it's... I really encourage people to be compassionate with themselves as they're going through and figuring out what areas of their life are still being impacted by the beliefs that they were raised with. We have to be a detective sometimes, put on detective hat and and connect those dots there. But it can be um, very helpful when people are finally making some of those connections. So how do you go, Janice, and and I speak to this as you know, our listeners would know, I, I'm a, I have a clinical background as well as a social worker and therapist. And I know that you've really got to guard yourself against, and I'm not just talking about the religious trauma stuff, but quite often making sure that you are really aware of your background, your biases, your prejudices that come from, you know, the baggage we all carry. The, the reality is we carry it. You're working with people who have experienced religious trauma, you yourself have come from that that background. How do you actively manage that? Because I'd imagine that it is something that you would have to actively manage to make sure that your experience isn't tainting your, uh, I guess, your um, interpretation of their experience or their journey. How does that work for you? I think a big part of that is... Um the fact that I also have a therapist that I go to. I think that's really important um, for mental health clinicians to make sure that they are also uh, talking to someone about their own, about their own stuff. So that's uh, one thing that I find quite helpful. Um, And also just asking questions the client wanting to make sure I'm not misinterpreting something that they're telling me or adding in my own uh, extra pieces to it. I want to know straight from them about their experiences and their feelings around uh, what has happened. So what similarities do you see between groups? Is it is it that people come to you and say, I'm a Mormon and it's one kettle of fish or are they come from Jehovah's Witnesses and it's another? Or do you see, look, this is basically the same with slight nuances? Right. There's been indoctrination that has taken place at some point. And so a lot of the folks I work with were indoctrinated in childhood in their home. But I do also see clients who came to religion or joined cults in their adult years. So we know the one thing Uh, that's in common for those groups is that they were typically in a a vulnerable time in their life or a transition point. So maybe they were a college student or university student away from home for the first time, or maybe uh, they are a senior citizen and their partner has died, 
or of course in childhood, we're basically helpless against indoctrination if our parents are delivering it with fear and if there's fear in the home uh, if there's going to be corporal punishment involved um so yeah there's we we accept it and receive it when we're in a vulnerable point so that's one thing i do work with clients on is you know tell me about who introduced you to the belief system and how old were you and what was their position in your life were they a caregiver? Were they a spouse? Um, yeah, those are some of the things that we start out with. And that's kind of a theme that I see going through all those different groups. Then what do you see in terms of differences between those that are raised in it and those that join it maybe as teenagers or maybe as young adults? Is there a difference there? Yeah, I think there definitely is. And we're talking sometimes about the difference between first generation and second generation. So my parents um, became religious in their adult years. So their personalities, temperaments had already formed. They'd have, they've had all sorts of experiences already before they uh, became very devout Christians. But I was raised in it and didn't have that same opportunity. My The way my personality developed was also very much according to uh, what my parents believed was sinful or not sinful. So I ingested all that. And that's, of course, also where codependency um, comes in. It's It can be somewhat easier for folks who came to it in adult life to readjust to life outside the group again. It can be really, really challenging for people who are second generation or multi-generational adherents to a religious group or cult. I mean, when we spoke to to Bart Campolo a couple of years ago, he spoke about lots of you know, megachurch past, pastors who and, and pastors in general that don't believe anymore, but they can't they can't walk away. Like it, it's just too hard, which goes back to that community stuff that we were talking about, but also they wouldn't know how to navigate the world. And it's similar to what you're just saying now, that there must be a real paralysing fear for some people, because I certainly know people that I go, why are you still actually going to a church? Because you're going through the motions. I know you don't believe this. I know it for a fact, because I, I, you know, I know you well enough to, to know that you, you're faking it. But they can't leave because I mean that must it's incredibly difficult so do you find yourself coaching people in these sessions as to basically build their self-esteem to get to a point where they can actually independently walk away knowing that there is something else out there that their world won't fall away providing um resource material is something and psychoeducation is a big uh, part of what I do. And I just mentioned codependency a moment ago. Um, and of course, poor self-esteem factors right in with that. In fact, there's a laundry list for people who have grown up in alcoholic homes called adult children of alcoholics. And, and I liken people who grew up in religious homes to acorns, adult children of religious nuts. The laundry lists are essentially uh, the same. They really are because for us, our parents were addicted to religion. 
I'm not quite sure why I got us onto that topic, but that's what I think. Oh, no. You take us to any topic that, that you need to. I, I wonder, do you get many people who contact you that aren't in religious communities themselves but are really concerned for a, a family member, a loved one, someone that they're going, how do I actually help them see that you know the, the stuff that they're believing is batshit crazy? Do you get many or any of those sort of people? Very few. But what I find interesting, especially over the last year, I've been hearing from more and more people who are Christian. They're still Christian. They are not interested in not being Christian, but they also are seeing some real flaws in uh, what they've been taught to believe. And I, I feel for those folks, they're in a tight place because they desperately want to hold on to uh, those beliefs that they cherish and, of course, their community. But there, there's an integrity with them that they're going, oh, something does not feel right, but it can't possibly be this one thing that is so important um, to them. So that's something that I find interesting. Janice, Brian's been out 10 to 15 years. I've been out 20 to 25 years. What about people who have been out for a long time? What sort of issues do we face in general? What what can we look for to say, oh, that, that's still going on in me, or that's a, a more mature version of what's going on in me? I think learning about how beliefs form and how, of course, our biases, uh, blind spots, because we can still we can still be swayed, we can still be pulled one way or the other, and not even really be aware um, that it's happening. So, educating ourselves about that. I I love uh, Dr. Steve Hassan's bite model that he uses, and I encourage my clients to become familiar with it. For your listeners, if they're not aware, um, bite is behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions. And if you are with a person or a group that's really trying to influence or prevent you uh, in some way from having access um, to those things, it's, it's time to step back and take a look. So Janice, now you're doing obviously this sort of counseling work, but you're also doing some activist work and you're also doing some, some work in the space with other counselors. You run uh, a conference and, and a podcast do you want to tell us all about what you're doing now and the things that you've got on offer for, for our audience that might be helpful to them? I sure do. Thanks for bringing that up. One of the first things that I did was I developed the Divorcing Religion Workshop, and that is a six-week uh, online workshop couple of hours every Sunday morning, you know, when people are not going to be in church there because uh, they've left religion. But so it's a small group dynamic, gives people the opportunity to talk about where they've come and where they are and where they want to go. And it's, it becomes a, they become a very close knit group of people by the end of those six weeks. And I look at how the stages of marital divorce can uh, reflect also the stages of uh, divorcing religion. So that is something that I really enjoy doing. And then I developed the Conference on Religious Trauma, also known as COURT. And uh, we're just heading into our third one in October. It's online. And I just have people speaking who are experts 
in the field of religious trauma and recovery or people who are survivors who have very interesting stories. And I try and pull together um, guests from all different backgrounds, very different backgrounds. And this year, uh, we'll actually be doing a panel on child marriage, because that does go on, sadly, in a lot of religious groups and cults. So Conference on Religious Trauma. Last year, I did Shameless Sexuality, Life After Purity Culture online conference. So this year, I'm kind of joining those two together. So I will have a number of speakers this year at court who will be speaking on on shameless sexuality topics. Um, I started my YouTube channel, and that's where I post uh, some of the older sessions from Conference on Religious Trauma and my own podcast, The Divorcing Religion Podcast. We'll make sure that we put all these links into our show notes so that people don't have to go very far to find you. So, so don't worry about that. I do want to ask you another question, though, because you just used the word, and that is a very polarizing word we find in this space, and that word is cult. Are you, are you happy to use that word? Are you cautiously using that word? Do you use it broadly or do you use it for only very small, narrow focus of groups? How do you how do you see that term? Because we find that it is quite a polarizing word. I think that's true. It is a polarizing word. And uh, people don't like to think that religions can be cults. Usually the defining cutoff for them is the group is too big. But I would sure say then that a lot of religions are culty, even if we're not going to call them cults directly. But I mean, look at look at the, the Moonies, the Unification Church, hundreds of thousands of members uh, around the world they've had at different times, but no one's had a hard time calling them a cult. But if we're looking at uh, Christianity and different segments of Christianity, people get upset if you call refer to their belief system as a cult or culty. So you have no problem using the word? No, no. And I do see people from, uh, from cults that are well known, like say the children of God, a uh, very destructive cult or various apocalyptic cults. And the clients will come to me and say that it was a cult. And then I have folks um, from yoga cults and they come to me and they will also uh, call it a cult sometimes and if they haven't referred to it that way I certainly don't refer to it that way but I might refer to it as a very high demand group or talk about um, coercion or, or coercive control that took place within that group and then have them look at the bite model and see if things align there but yeah I'm I'm comfortable with the way that I use it. It's funny because we had a ex Mooney come on and he said that even though the general society sees the Moonies as a cult, even some ex members refuse to use that word to describe something that most of us would say, Oh, for God's sake, it's a cult. So it's not surprising, I guess, that more mainstream groups feel a, a greater degree of privilege in not having to use that word to describe their group when in fact it may totally fit. Right. And because our identity is so tied in with our ideology, it's it can be hard. We've got a lot invested in that. Uh, and so we, we might not feel comfortable using that word. 
What do you? What are those key? If you would pull out a top five of identifying a cult, what would they be? Well, you're going to get tired of me sounding like a broken record, but again, I'm going to look at uh, the bite model. If the group is trying to restrict or influence your behavior, the information that you receive, what you're thinking or what you're allowed to think about, and the emotions uh, that you express, that is uh, a group that's placing undue uh, pressure on you to be a certain way. Really, if people are telling you um, what to think and what not to think or how to interpret something, and certainly we see that in all the different Christian groups, how how they interpret the Bible. And so there's all these breaks and schisms and uh, different varieties of um, Christianity. Yeah, it's a tough one when you come to thought because there are obviously psychological practices you know that are that are reputable things like thought stopping and thought changing and these other things that we do when facing our own trauma and yet at the same time we've got the cults that are telling us what we can and can't think about so it, it's hard for people to navigate when is someone trying to control our thinking or when is someone trying to encourage us to control our own thinking and when is that healthy and when is that not healthy yeah i'm i'm at a point in my life now where um, almost nothing is more important to me than my autonomy. I must have complete autonomy. I am allowed to think about, uh, pursue, read about, learn about anything that I want to. I tell people that life is like a buffet table, a huge buffet table with dishes as far as the eye can see. And religionists and fundamentalists would have us starve to death at that buffet table because we can only choose from from one dish it has to be the same dish over and over again and that's just not how i see things for me the ethics that i live by are um not to hurt other people to the best of my ability otherwise anything else on that table i'm allowed to try i can have some some i might want to go back for seconds and thirds some i might not enjoy and decide that's not the dish for me but that's okay. I'm allowed to try. We're just here gathering experiences. You say you, you know, you're at that point in your life now. You are at this point. When you look back, how often do you have those what the fuck moments? How did I actually believe this stuff? How did I get drawn in? How did this become such an integral part of my life? And how do you look at it now? Do you look at it? Uh, I guess, favorably, like from the things that you learned from it? Or do you look at it and go, I wish that had never happened? Mm, yeah, some things will really get me to thinking about it like this uh, shiny, happy people docuseries that's just come out recently and uh, looking at the Duggar family in the United States. And as I was watching that uh, show with my partner, I had him stop program at one point and I just had to contact my daughters, just message them and apologize again uh, for raising them in such a stifling environment. And 
I mean, my kids are in their mid twenties now. This is, you know, a long way in the past for them. But but there are still times uh, when I think, oh, I I do wish I hadn't have done that. But we can only live life moving forward. So I view regrets as indicating growth. And the fact that I have those regrets shows that I have grown. I'm not that same person anymore. Um, and I have sent written apologies to my children and I've apologized to them individually and I help uh, pay for therapy costs um, if that's needed because I know that I was uh, a contributor to some of the reasons that they might uh, choose to have therapy and other than that I can't really do anything else I'm living the rest of my life trying to help other people so that maybe they don't make the mistakes that I made or um, even to help them do what I just mentioned, reaching out to our children, taking ownership of the choices that we made when we were indoctrinated, uh, owning those and apologizing for them. Janice Selby, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today. There has been so much of value in there, both for me and Brian, for sure, and our audience we want to also remind our audience that this is the half of our interaction with Janice and Janice's interaction with us. That Now what we're going to do is we're going to jump over to her podcast. We will put a direct link in our show notes so you don't have to go searching. It'll take you straight there and you can go straight into her, her pod. Janice, you want to just tell people the name of your podcast if they want to do it themselves because autonomy is everything. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Yes, uh, my podcast is called The Divorcing Religion Podcast. Great. So let's see everybody over there right now. And let's pick up part two of this episode with Janice Selby. And I was a teenage fundamentalist. Thanks, Janice. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 